It's about sharing. I like to coin the phrase, a rising tide floats all boats, because the more um, knowledge you share, the more restaurants raise their level, the harder you have to push yourself now to stand out. And as soon as you stop doing that, as soon as you think, oh, okay, I've hit three stars, I've, I've done restaurant number one on whatever award ceremony, you get lazy. And uh, when you get lazy, you start dropping off. Never get lazy. Always, always be innovating and always be, th- or at least always do what you do and what you know you're going to do well. Always strive to do better every day because when you do that, it's never going to drop off. You're always going to be there. Amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. What is more important, techniques or creativity? For my guest today, Chef Riku Hodanahu. One cannot exist without the other. He recently took over the chef position at Amoret in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, after working in different places around the world, in the UK, in New Zealand, South Africa, Asia, and Scandinavia. The food experience with Chef Odenahue has something nostalgic and whimsical. The delivery and the presentation are critical. It is not only about great ingredients and great flavors, He brings a level of theater to the dining experience. The creativity behind his dishes are undeniable. Hi, everybody. This is Emmanuel Laroche from FlavorsUnknown.com, and you are listening to the Flavor Unknown podcast. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I sit down with awardee chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the US to share their inspirational stories, talk about their successes and challenges, and try to understand how their cultural heritage influences their creative process. Please follow Flavors Unknown on your favorite podcast app. And if you are a regular listener of the Flavor Unknown podcast, make yourself known and send me an email at contact at flavorsunknown.com. I would love to chat with you. Chef Riku Haudenayu worked at different Michelin star restaurants, to build his culinary expertise, Blumenthal, Marco Pierre White, and Thomas Keller. He focuses on ingredients-led food, no waste, and leverage science in his cuisine. He talks about his participation to MasterChef in the UK and his creative process. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm great. Excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you're welcome. So you are originally from the UK. And mm-hmm. so how would you describe your youth and, you know, in the UK? Ooh, good question. So my youth in the UK was mixed, very, very mixed bag of reviews. We, me and the family, we grew up quite poor on a council estate in the UK. My mother was a single mother, worked at a, a florist she had as young, my sister and I. And yes, we, we, we struggled quite heavily, really, until... We got into our teenage years and she had been at school and working three jobs and got a psychology degree and then eventually became a psychologist and life changed quite dramatically. But growing up was tough, man. It was real tough. Yeah. That's and, right. and is your, your grandmother from your mom's side from Scandinavia? Yeah. yeah. Is it correct? 
What, what food influences did you uh, grow up with? Do you have a little bit of uh, the influence from your grandma? With Absolutely, yeah. So she actually was, even, even though from the Scandinavian background, she lived in the UK for most of her life after sort of 20s in Northumberland, uh, which is where a lot of Scandinavians went. Even the originals, the Vikings in, invaded Northumberland, as it were. She really got into baking and what have you as a, as a kid. That was kind of her escapism, as it were, from sort of the day-to-day grind of, again, not coming from a sort of a highly educated background or anything like that. Did you uh, did you grow up with like a small bird, like you know those open sandwich face? And, yeah, and no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I spent time in uh, in Sweden, so yeah. uh, a little bit. So and like, yeah, I love those. breakfast and yeah. you know smoked fish as smoked well. Fish, like yeah. you know that, that that one of the household staple pickled herring and salmon. Obviously, and you love those tastes. Yeah, taste. You love those flavors. I, I love them, and I I actually introduced them into a lot of you know what what I do naturally, as it were. You know, you grow up on it, and that's. And that's what you uh, you end up doing, as it were. I mean, my mother wasn't a great cook at all because she never she never had to cook, and she never professed that she was good. And we were kind of in a position uh, where I was like, "Sure, I need to eat some good food, man." Like, and the only way to do that is to you know get get, get lessons, I guess. But thankfully, I got to spend a lot of time with my grandmother, and that was kind of one of my biggest hobbies on a on a weekend after school and what have you would be. Um, cooking with her in her kitchen and learning how to make sweet stuff. Really, I mean, this, she that she had a major sweet tooth, and she, you know, I learned how to make a a lemon meringue pie and lemon tarts, uh, tartu citron and tartu chocolat, and what did like all, all of all of that stuff, all, all all of that really sort of it's don't want to say old school, but classic um, French pastry uh, training that she had taught herself and bought recipe books. She had uh, all of these classic. Um, chefs and she used to make these crazy french onion soups and what have you and people weren't eating that kind of stuff at my school you know people just weren't eating classically made french onion soup no yeah i'm sure (laughs) she'd go to a like a deli around the corner and like buy foie gras bring that home and like yeah and you get mince pie in uh, in your school i guess yeah (laughs) you know we were we were eating i mean she wasn't she had no money either she was like nursing at a nursing home so she'd save all this stuff and her spend was instead of buying things it was buying food she'd save her food items that was her that was her pleasure so i guess her. the love of food came um you know from that yeah you know, for you I, I think so, it's so you say you you studied uh psychology but as well i read like chemistry and music so yeah absolutely. get me through the story how what compelled you to become a chef you know from you know, doing those kind of studies and then yeah. being a chef being from the very small town of Chilwell. Or growing up there, around 15 years old, I needed a job. So I'm going to school still. I needed a job. The only, there's only like four places to work there. And luckily enough, one of them down the road is a place called Hamilton. And a two Michelin star restaurant is there on the back doorstep. So I was lucky enough to be able to find a hot wash position and before you know it with the sister hotel as well hearts which was in also rural nottinghamshire so in between those two places depending on when i was needed and it took a long time to get in there i had to practically beg and then someone didn't turn up one day and i ended up with the job and then because it's washing dishes right it's not rocket science so i was getting very good at it i suppose and i didn't have a lot to do because i was getting through the the plates and the cutlery and the glassware and what have you. So they gave me medial tasks of peeling vegetables and et cetera, et cetera. 
So then it was turning vegetables when that was still a thing and uh, making then the gratin and then blanching the vegetables on a timer with the weight out, the brine, the salt water, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then before you know it, I was shadowing a guy on um, vegetable or gommage. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and then I was there. I, 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 I was there, and even though I was studying and only being there uh, sort of part-time to begin with, I ended up having a full-time position because that was the only choice that I had, and still going to uh, school. So when I was um, studying, like it's full-time because you're doing over 40 hours. It doesn't matter that you're not there all day. You're still doing 40 hours a week of work, and you're doing you know 28 hours uh, at school. So that was the that, that was how it went for uh, quite a long time until yeah. and school was still psychology at that time or so the, the way that they did access courses here to sort of get a master's or bachelor's or whatever is you pick a subject that you're going to um uh, do but you also have to have a, a extracurricular subject because that's just the requirements of some of the universities sure. yeah. in the UK. but there was not at all culinary space no no you're exactly not at all it wasn't there's, in a culinary space now. So I ended up qualifying, getting getting my um, uh, chemistry degree, and then I said, "Oh, I want to go work in London." To my head chef at the time, Aaron Patterson, and he said, "Well, the only way you're going to get a job down there is if you have a qualification now, like it's required, as it were." So I did a MVQ on-site thing where they come to the, your place of work, they assess you there. Got it really quick because he knew somebody. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but what the hell? Yeah, it's a very long time ago. <laughs> long time um, ago, yes. Yeah, uh, um, the water under the bridge now. <laughs> they can come after me, whatever. But yeah, I, I got that real quick. So it took about a year and a half and I had an MVQ level three. And that was at Wheelers of St. James in London with Marco Pierre White under Francis, this head chef at the time. And then I went off. And you started, um, you know, like washing dishes at two Michelin star. And then after that, you, you start, you went with, uh, Marco Pierre, not, not you know, not bad. <laughs> Marco no, it Pierre was, uh, it was lucky. To start. <laughs> so th- there was, yeah. So there was a few different, um, referrals. Obviously there was a few different options I could have done, but Aaron used to work with Marco and Gordon and a few other legends at, with, uh, Raymond Blanc. So. Okay. Wow. Had Seth Baines, you know, lots, lots of big names there, um, that generation, as it were. We obviously won't be able to go into the detail of every, you know, step that you have done, but you work at different you know, Michelin star restaurants to build your culinary expertise. So exactly, yeah. you talk about Marco Pierre White, uh, Blumenthal was another one. You yeah, went to, uh, you know, Thomas Keller as well in the US and yeah. so on. So who has been your most influenced, uh, influential mentor? The biggest mentor working with or working for at a place was definitely the fat duck because it kind of pulled my chemistry, pulled that sort of science background and that culinary, you know, wanting that striving to sort of taste everything and understand everything and understand what flavor really is. So I really got into the whole forget about why, not forget about why, forget about the, the flavor and forget about the way it looks for a moment. And let's start thinking about why it tastes like that and how long a piece of sugar snap pea needs to be in the pod for what kind of water, what kind of terrain it needs to be grown in to make it be its best version of itself. And that was the interesting part for me. It was the, not the product it, it itself, but how it became that product, the, the process, the steps to and get pro- there. Probably connect, connected as well with your 
background and your education in chemistry, correct? 100%. Because then you could tie those two things together. Exactly. Right? It no. made it very easy to do that, you know? And then from there, you know, I went to the French Laundry for one reason only. It was to see the French Laundry. It was to experience the French Laundry. It was, it was amazing, but it, it's not really my thing. Where is that your thing? Where you were saying this? Because I'd already done it. I'd done it at Hamilton Hall. I'd done it at uh, uh, Wheelers. I'd done it at um, uh, Hot's Hotel. I'd, d- I'd done it already. And um, not to say that he isn't a legend and isn't top of his game. And I saw better versions of stuff that I'd previously seen. But that's what it was. It was seeing something that I already understood. I already understood Comfy. I only already understood 2V, the processes and the Brinoir and all of these techniques and all of these things that you you should be a pedigree to by the time you get to sort of that level. I'd already been there and seen that. So it wasn't like I didn't learn anything while I was there. Sources, I learned so much while I was there because there was like 26 sources on the menu at the time. But I was more interested in the the, the, the conceptual work behind the, the food rather than just having food for food's sake, eating a beautifully prepared meal that looks beautiful. I, I wanted to connect a little bit more to it. And because of past experiences, so food time wasn't fun for us because we didn't enjoy the food we were eating because we couldn't afford the good food. And we had, uh, you know, we had a lot of Irish food because my father being Irish um, and my grandmother's still in the picture and what, but like potatoes and cabbage and stuff. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't season that stuff, it doesn't <laughs> taste very nice. And, you know, not, not, not understanding um, what a good cabbage is compared to a bad cabbage and, uh, all that kind of stuff as well. So I was really into how to make dinner time fun again, as well as how to turn food into something that has a story and represents something. It has a it has a mindful experience behind it, not just uh, a preparation. So that took me to you know w- wanting to sort of stage at Noma and they like, took my heads into kitchens like that and Helsinki, Finland, Chez Dominique and very conceptual places, uh, Diverexo in Spain, you know. Getting to go to Spain and do a course with you know the the El Bully brothers, Ferran and Adria, in their development uh, space, and you know working with some incredible chefs in between that, who are on the same level as you, but you all have a very different cut and lots of different ideas, and you amalgamate that and you put it in one room, and then all of a sudden all this crazy genius starts happening out of out of nowhere and it's inspiring it's really inspiring listening to you and i'm thinking about like your resume and it's like you checked all the boxes of you know all those restaurants that are very famous for you know looking at the food experience you know completely from outside of the box and i think that uh, you know that that's great that you were able to you know to to experience you know all of that yeah well, unfortunately, I never got to work at El Bully because it closed. But yeah, it closed there, yeah. The, the workshop that they did was incredible. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And I think anyone who anyone who was there, and a lot, a, a lot of them that I know and now have Michelin stars in uh, Singapore and di- the different places, you know, the, the very reason we get as good as we are is because of people like that opening up their doors and allowing chefs to come in and basically pick at their minds and, Steal their secrets, I guess, you know, uh, all, the, all these things which were the, the, like. In the that's industry. amazing because if you think about like 
the former generation, and I would say almost like the the chef, you know, the French chef and so on, they were really very secretive and keeping, yeah. you know, everything that they were doing. Yeah, uh, sure. It seems that the new generation, at least, you know, of chef, it's yeah. that's completely different. It's about sharing, Much- and it really yeah. is. I, I like to coin the phrase, a rising tide floats all boats, because the more um, knowledge you share, the more restaurants raise their level, the harder you have to push yourself now to stand out. And as soon as you stop doing that, as soon as you think, oh, okay, I've hit three stars, I've I've done restaurant number one on whatever award ceremony, whether it's World Luxury or 50 Best or La List, any of that stuff, you get lazy. And uh, when you get lazy, you start dropping off, you know? Never get lazy. Always, always be innovating. Or at least always do what you do and what you know you're going to do well. Always strive to do better every day because when you do that, it's never going to drop off. You're always going to be there. And it's not about awards. No, it's it's not. But I mean, it, it's it's really interesting listening to a lot of you know chefs that I've interviewed for the podcast. Is already like the the environment and the industry is a tough one. And obviously, with the recent you know episodes of the pandemic, it's it added you know a lot of pressure. But you guys, you know, a lot of you put a lot of pressure on yourself as well. You know, by really striving for you know perfection. You know, and and being always being the best. And I don't think that. People really realize that they see only an aspect of, you know, of this on TV, you know, with TV shows. When they go to the restaurants, they just want to have a good time. They don't really understand, you know, what's behind the scenes. And, you know, in on TV and TV shows, it's a it's a different, you know, it's a different perspective of things. I mean, talking about this before we continue your journey. And I want to hear from you about like all the experiences that you had in different parts of the world. You had that episode as well when you participated to uh, Master Chefs, you know, in in the UK. So, what what was your motivation to to do that? I actually got stitched up there. I'll be completely honest with you. So, a friend of mine put the application in for me, <laughs> and I was like, "What that? No, 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 not bother." Because I I used to give it flack. I used to be like, because I I knew two of the chefs who went on previous shows, and Stay like, okay. and forgive me, the BBC. I'm going to give away some uh, secrets now. So. You go for it. Email my, <laughs> my email address will not be available to the BBC. Okay, so I'm sitting there screaming at the TV going, how the hell is this dude not doing what I know he can do? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. The pressure can't be that bad, surely, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is before. You were saying this before, prior to the yeah, show, right? Prior to yeah, the yeah. show. And, uh, you know, I was fairly young then as well. I mean, it was, it was a long time ago now. It's like six years ago, even more that it was filmed. And then it came out the, the next year or whatever. I was, I was still sort of gravitating towards what my field was. Didn't really know at the time I was in between sort of Scandinavian cooking and Japanese cooking and a little bit of uh, South American influence as well. I'm just trying to do all the quirky stuff and not really having an identity six or seven years ago. So. This guy, Andrew, applies for me and I get the call back and I'm like, I'm about to say no. And then I'm like, hell man, just do it. Just do it. So I did it. I went on there. I was uncompromising in what I wanted to do. And then I saw why things don't work out the way that they're supposed to work out. Well, I mean, you're set up to fail a lot of the time. What do you mean by that? There's, there's things that go wrong. There's 
There's no power to your oven. There's uh, particular pieces of equipment. So because it's good for the show? Because it's it's got to be that. It's got to be that. It's got to be because there's nothing mentioned. There's no like, okay, let's stop what we're doing. Let's let's get let's get back on track. Let's fix the problem and then allow everyone to have an equal chance. That doesn't happen. You see, you see people go down for the stupidest things, and even yeah, and I, that's not really a competition. Then that's more like that's a TV show. It, need, it needs views. It needs, and if you disagree and you argue and you uh, fight about it, then you see yourself leaving the show pretty quickly. Okay, got it. Yeah. This, it, <laughs> okay. Uh, and that wasn't me, so, thankfully, but I saw it with my own eyes. I was like, wow, that just happened. And okay. Wow. Is yeah. it uh, then that you got the nickname of uh, the Viking chef? Or yeah, that was, yeah, it was. It was just after that. Uh, well, people were tweeting that. Who's the Viking? Yeah, who's the Viking using all the weird ingredients and this new, new Scandinavian cookery that they'd never seen on the show before and with Japanese influence? So. I mean, the, the 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 great thing about that show was I really pushed the boundaries with doing me, the flavor combinations and the, I, I call it not fusion cuisine, but like mirroring cuisine. So for example, in Scandinavian cookery, you'd have raw fish and there'd be licorice or aniseed introduced uh, to the, the flavors in fennel seed or licorice or whatever. So in Japan, they'll use star anise, for example. So I was doing that crossover and then I was having, you know, Marcus Waring, who's, I'd like to say, only a one Michelin star chef now, telling me that this is wrong. And I'd say, but if you put fennel with it, it's not wrong. And it's the same flavor. And then they'd stop, they'd have to re-record him saying something else, et cetera, et cetera, because it's embarrassing, right? It's got to be embarrassing. <laughs> so, I mean, things like that. Why have, you, why have you used black garlic in a dessert? Well, it tastes of licorice. Oh. Dude, you got two. Okay. Oh, wow. So okay, got it. You're in a position like that, and there was a few people confused. There was one guy on there that did a king crab curry. Uh, I tasted it. It was amazing. It was a very subtle curry. The judge got it, his knickers in a twist because he thought that king crab just needed butter and whatever with it. it, it he, he didn't think that it went in a curry. And, like, just taste it and try and understand where this guy is coming from. Don't just stay in your lane. Like, try and think out. The, I believe it's your job as a judge to not just stay in your lane. It's to have a look through every walk of life and be in other people's shoes and try and understand what you're putting in your mouth. And then as soon as you get over that, then you have a better experience. And that's what we try and do with the food now. We do this blind tasting thing where you get things that look like things that they aren't. And you put them in the mouth and you're expecting it to taste a certain way. And then actually it doesn't taste like it at all. And the chemistry comes Tricking the brain. Yeah, exactly. And why psychology helped there was once I had a few too many beers while I was in Helsinki and uh, I ran downstairs, uh, quite dehydrated, about four in the morning. I went in the fridge and grabbed a bottle of what I thought was milk and drank it. And it was actually orange juice because they came in the same glass bottles delivered at the door. So my body had a bit of a weird reaction because of this. Um, I actually wanted to um, throw up because my body was like, oh, in shock, you know, this this acidic thing instead of this creamy uh, thing. And for the first time in my life, I tasted orange juice properly because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't have you that didn't sense cut off. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So now what I try and do is trick 
people, I guess, as much as humanly possible before certain things go in their mouths. I use insects in my cooking. They do in Scandinavia quite a lot. We don't really lead on too much about it. Of course, we have to disclose because people want, if they don't want to eat it, you can't force them to eat it. But a lot of people do. And they're like, well, it just tastes like popcorn or it just tastes like something. I'm like, no, exactly. And it's also about an environmental thing. It's about using alternative proteins and not using stuff that we literally mowing down the whole planet to feed, you know, cows to then kill them and then eat them or whatever. Like there's a, there's a big environmental shift. There's a big environmental change. There's, there's a big difference between the way that we used to use vegetables and use, um, well, anything really to what there is now. We try and use everything now. We run a 98% no wastage policy at Amarad, for example. Yeah. Let's, you know, go back to your current concept a bit later. But before that, I, I just want to go back to the experiences that you had in there like, throughout the world. So because you work in, obviously, in the UK, you were in New Zealand, you went in South Africa before coming, you know, here. You were in Asia, in Scandinavia, you have, you know, all those experiences. So just curious if, if you had some food haha moments, you know, from the, you know, stays in, in uh, those different countries. Anything that's, you know, stick in your mind? Do you mean ha-ha funny or ha-ha No, okay. no, no, <laughs> ha-ha, like ha, you know, kind oh, of revelation, okay. you know. I think, um, yeah, I did a little in-out of um, a couple of ramen joints in Japan, and that really opened up my eyes to what ramen is, and it's basically the rogue soup of Asia. Anything can go in it, anything goes. There's some purists sort of in the Western world who believe that ramen should be x y and z and it really isn't like that there and you know it's it's having rules like that in place and you know you're thinking that something's wrong when a lot of the time it isn't and some of the obscure ingredients that they use in their ramen and what have you as well and how long it takes to make a traditional um family recipe of of the broth some of these are the same batch has been running for 172 years that's crazy. So it's kind of like the mother of a, yeah. like a starter for a bread, exactly. you know? Or the bread, yeah. Yeah, exactly the same thing. So is it the idea that you think it's, you know, when you were talking before, you said, oh, it's wrong because you you come with like a certain set of like reference. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. and so it's the idea. So it helped you like traveling around the world, help you to, you know, to be exposed to things that were so different that, uh, you know, it's really open, let's say, your eyes and your mind to you yeah. know, other options. Exactly, so. yeah. I think that the, the, the overall gist of it was, or the summary conclusion, is that there is no wrong or right. It's, it's music. It's, it's down to the person who is consuming or listening or whatever to be the judge of what is wrong and what is right. Rules aren't necessarily there for the right reasons, and you should question everything. If the end consumer is the judge, how do you reconcile like see your creative aspect and the idea that you want to force this, like boundaries, you know, and and explore. But at the same time, you need to make sure that obviously you have customers that are going to buy and you know at least sit in your at your restaurants and, and you know and and eat. So I think the fine line there is marketing. <laughs> so if you if you marketed yourself to in the right way for one, 
to the right demographic of uh, people that you believe are going to be going to your restaurant, then you're going to hit the nail on the head. I mean, like if you're opening a steakhouse, you market to you market to the meat market, right? That's what you do. You're not going to expect a lot of vegans through the door. So in a place at the moment with PR and with all of that kind of stuff, marketing, internal marketing and external marketing as well, that, you know, is telling the story and that like the, the story is come up and be put on a road to discovery rather than a path of what you already know um, and have an open mind with like, I'm trying to promote it as fun dining, which is actually a um, restaurant, um, a restaurant's motto in the UK and Wales actually called Ishaya Hall. The head chef there is Gareth Ward, the owner. Um, he's a Michelin star chef. I used to work with um, Ad Hearts and Hamilton actually. And he's, he's amazing. He's pushing boundaries there as well, but in his own way with Indian cookery and what have you as well. But it, it's really, really a case of, Come and be surprised. We want you to do things that you haven't done before as far as food is concerned. We want to show you we implement chemistry to get there. We want to show you how we use the environment and how we represent the environment and how everything has a story. And I think if, you, if you're willing to go and be told a story during dinner, if dinner is a story, it's a lot different than just having, like, say, a plate of bugs putting in front of you for the sake of just eating some bugs. If there's a reason behind it, most people, whether they're from a low LSM, high LSM, self-proclaimed foodies, chefs, just people who like food in general, or people who want to discover new things, whoever you are, whatever background or ilk you come from, if you come in with that sort of philosophy in mind that you've come to be told a story, then you have a great time. Isn't this like easier to do when you are based in, I don't know, Manhattan or Chicago on LA versus, you know, where you decided to <laughs> anchor yourself in like rural Pennsylvania? Yeah. And Lancaster. So the good thing about Lancaster, it's right in between Washington. It's right in between Philly. It's right in between New York. And not to say that we don't want locals. That is not the message I'm trying to promote here at all. There are a lot of locals in Lancaster that love dining in the city of New York, in the city of Washington, D.C., in Philly. They fly regularly to overseas to other restaurants. So we had a couple in the other day who are local, local, like in a penthouse apartment just down the street. They constantly go to Reykjavik to eat at Dill. You know, I want Michelin star restaurant there. It just shows if you are, if you are of the right caliber. I might be a bit elitist saying that, but the right sort of restaurant and the right appeal and the right energy and the right sort of... Your destination. It, your exactly. Destination you become a yeah. destination yeah. restaurant. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean just destination for people outside of Lancaster. That you know, Imagine having a restaurant like that in Lancaster and not having to go to Manhattan now. You know, So it works. And we get, we get people from Philly. We get people from Washington. We get people from LA. We had a couple, again, they got married in uh, Hawaii. They flew to San Francisco at the Cren, then went to the French Laundry, then Alinea. They planned this whole thing out. They saw our social media campaign. And then on the way home to uh, Philly, they actually stopped at the airport near Lidditz, got off, booked that day, came in, ate. I'm not going to tell you what the, the, how they compared us because people might be listening and what have you. But we did well. We did all right in the mix of all. All those names we were saying, they said we were definitely top two experiences. That's um, great. The food. Congratulations. So, That's great. 
let's focus on then today. So can you tell us what is the immersive like dining experience that you have created at, you know, Amoret, because that's the name of, you know, your restaurant in, in Lancaster. Pennsylvania has some amazing produce. And when I say amazing, it's some of the best mushroom developments, some of the, the, the wildest herbs, berries, fruits in general, wild garlic, wild onions, tree saps, pines, the list goes on and on and on. It is rich to the core with vegetation throughout the year, even winter. Those kind of places really warm my heart. And the reason why is because we're trying to do the very in thing and it is an in to be green now, very sort of, you know, people are publicizing it in a way where, you know, oh yeah, we're sustainable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there isn't really anything as sustainable unless you are actually sustainable. And what that means is your suppliers, when they drop off anything wrapped in plastic, this isn't sustainable. If they're dropping anything off in boxes that have splints in or uh, what would we call them, any anything that keeps it together that has to be discarded and put in a landfill, you're not being sustainable. So we try and forage. We try and use so small suppliers that forage and keep the local community and economy ticking over and base menus on exactly what is available. So for the next two months, I have so many mushrooms at my disposal. It's, un- it's unreal. So this whole menu um, coming up uh, on the 20th of this month is called fungi. And it contains cordyceps. It contains so many different variety of mushrooms. And then we go one further. We use bacteria to do a lot of fermentation and kojis and using the land itself and the cultivants of the land to create the menu. And then only using local game. And you can't do local fish because there is no local fish, unfortunately. There's some sort of river species and whatnot that are available. So again, you can't be 100% sustainable. It's, in, it's impossible unless, unless you're doing it like altitude and places like that. So we're on a, I'd like to call it a 95% sustainable menu. So green, carbon um, neutral. We no don't waste, waste anything. Said- we turn absolutely every part of something that is edible anyway into something that you can eat, but isn't just there for the sake of being there. You've got to make it. You've got to make it taste good. Okay. You've so, can you give it. us like an example of a, a dish based on this approach? Indeed, with, like, yeah. No waste. And, so, so there's a you know ingredient led food. And- yeah. So there's a. A few examples, but one of the sort of to get your head around at home, I guess, is a caprese salad. So it's heirloom tomatoes that have been growing all through the summer now in um, actually the owner, Donna's uh, garden. She has this huge crop of these beautiful heirloom tomatoes, basil and all other kinds of herbs lying around. So we get in this beautiful milk from a local dairy. We make our own bocchettini. We juice the caps of the tomatoes that you can't put in the salad because they go brown then because they're organic. They don't look as beautiful as obviously normal uh, tomatoes. So we only take the beautiful part out of it for presentation purposes. But then we juice the other part and make this smoked tomato transparent, a consomme, set consomme basically, and set it over the whole thing um, with the basil and the homemade bocchettini underneath. What we do with the pulp is then we dry that out and turn it into this like ketchup wafer, as it were, as it concentrates it. Um, it goes leathery and then concentrates even more. It turns really crispy. But the pop of tomato is just insane. It's incredible. We then get that smoked tomato essence and put it in a hypodermic needle and inject it back into the heirloom tomatoes to make the 
tomatoes taste even more tomatoey. And then with the whey, instead of that going in the bin, we freeze it and turn it into a dome because that's where the cheese gets all its flavor from. And then we sit that on top of the, the salad, encapsulating the whole thing and then put it in a bowl that's made from baking that soil and all the offcuts into the bowls. So there's all these little tomatoey bits like blasted into the bowl themselves and it's shoddy and it looks almost like a shell really. It's, very cool indeed. And then with the basil stalks, we make we make a juice out of that and that gets added to the dish as well. So all of a sudden you have this caprese salad, which doesn't t- any longer taste like a caprese salad. You've got something otherworldly. It's just so fresh and so organic uh, in flavor. And actually after eating it, you kind of feel like you're buzzing a little bit, like like you've absorbed something that you wouldn't normally get out of food, you know? And whether it's the love and the energy that's been poured into it or whether it's just because it's so good for you and we're using every last part of it. So because of that, we kind of do that in every dish and the similar sort of process, similar things, making sure that things are dried out, turned into powders and added back to or oils and added back to or juices and added back to the dishes. Yeah. Would you describe your cooking style at a certain moment as a molecular gastronomy or not, no, really? not really? No. There are elements of molecular gastronomy in there. We sparify olive oils and uh, balsamic vinegars, again, to go with that, because that's a classic accompaniment that you'd have with a crazy salad. But we don't do um, like a full menu just based on molecular. I think it's more scientific-driven cuisine is a better way of um, putting it, because it, even though it, it, like molecular, do you really go down to a molecular level through everything, you you don't through most of it. So we do use elements of the molecular stuff, but we do use a lot of signs. So we have a levitating dessert, for example. Levitating. There's gas, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, Alinea use a helium to make a edible balloon, for example. We use a different gas or gases, blend aerated sugar or aerated chocolate sometimes as well. And then we float it in a in a tank, it levitates in front of you and yeah, and then we smash it sort of on the plate and there's this huge sort of um, display of theater, you know, at the last point of the of the night, as it were. It's not just levitating for levitating's sake. If you leave it in the gas for long enough, it changes the composite of, and that is molecular, changes the composite of the, of the ball that's in there and then it takes on a particular flavor because if something gets oxidized, obviously you get a stale flavor. If it gets carbonized, you get a more intense flavor because you're losing oxygen so it's concentrating the molecular sort of composition of um, the food itself so using a blend of non-toxic gases we we get to not only float but get to flavor the uh the the thing in the process as well which i think is quite cool and it's very it's a poly trick it is what it is but it's it's a cool thing to see and cool thing to experience from a consumer point of view it's all about like you know the customer experience yeah so what, what are your sources of inspiration Jackson Pollock, um, Salvador Dali, Tool, the Baroque period, my wife, my son, Earth. Your wife, your son, what do you mean by, because, you know, from an artist and so on, I, I can I can understand from, you know, colors, forms and so on, just, you know. Yeah. That. So my wife is a photographer and she takes some of these abstract photos of even my food sometimes. And I've looked at something and just been purely inspired just by the shapes and the and the colors that she's managed to capture in an organic environment. And then my son, because uh, at dinner, How old is he? he's 10 months at the moment, he's coming out okay. 11 months, but a bit of an artist himself, you know, he likes to dip his hands in stuff he, he shouldn't dip his hands in during dinner time <laughs> and make his own little collage 
He's doing his Pollock. He's doing his Pollock already. So yeah. sometimes I'll actually, Got it. that's quite good. And then, <laughs> and, and when I say earth, I mean things that happen on the environmental changes and what have you. We have one of the mushroom dishes on the uh, menu is called forest floor or burnt forest floor. There's actually a tree which is growing out of ashes, which is presented as the uh, moose bouche. Um, and it has uh, a cricket fried in what appears to be a coal. It looks like a white coal, like it's been burning. Um, you eat it, it tastes like popcorn. It's delicious. And then there's amber, what p- appears to be amber with little ants caught in it. And as you know, when there's a forest fire, the sap gets really hot, bursts out of the trees. It engulfs all the ants and insects. And then you end up with these fossilized little things. And that's one of the courses. And then the, it's on this burnt piece of wood with mushrooms, which is actually bread and butter growing out of the wood. So you have your bread and butter and your amuse bouche at the at the same time, I need, I need to find like two and a half hour to drive to uh, to your place. Yeah, cool. <laughs> you know, from home. definitely. Now, yeah. now I want to experience that. So um, I have always that that questions, you know, to a lot of chefs talking about what is more important, you know, for them is it technique or, or creativity, and everyone has a different opinion on it. So I, I just want to have yours. I think equal parts of both is necessary. I think if you you're technique driven, great. You're going to produce some beautiful food. You're going to produce some beautiful tasting food, but you're not going to give anyone that they haven't experienced before if they're into this sort of world of gastronomy. You know, if they, if they go to all of these restaurants and they, and they, they, they eat at these places all the time, there's going to be limits there. With creativity, you can have all the creativity in the world, but if you don't know any techniques, how, how are you going to, how are you going to roll it out? It's impossible. So I think, yeah, equal amounts of both. It's a good question though, because you, you made me realize how important both are and, as equally important without one there wouldn't be the other you know okay so thank you you know for the conversation i'm always finishing the the conversation with a series of rapid fire questions okay. so if it's okay with you no no problem at all okay so what's the food smell that reminds you of your childhood oh lemon 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 yeah why lemon uh lemon pies lemon cakes lemon using lemons as soap like the skin my grandmother again she was yeah she was uh very into lemons. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Oh, waffles with chicken. Yeah. Waffles with chicken. Yeah. Okay. Fried chicken and waffles. Okay. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career. The new Alinea cookbook with Alinea series. It's beautifully crafted. It's very conceptual. And then El Bully. Yeah, that really did inspire me back uh, way back when. Can you share maybe like a funniest story or moment that happened? since you are in this industry? Yeah, okay. So once upon a time when I was a disruptive young man, we- You're not that old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but m- much younger than I am now. So he, he he was, yeah, a little disruptive and he decided that, that stop talking about yeah, yourself yeah. the third yeah, person. I understood, I understood. Um, third person, but I understood. Yeah. <laughs> he pulled a couple of guys' pants down and hit them with some leaks that he trimmed the end off. So I, I was whipping them and they were whipping me back. We're just, you're just being kids, really, just being fun um, teenagers. I think I was 18, 19 at the time. So I got caught by the exec chef. He was watching for a bit and just waiting for the right moment. He pulled the, uh, this was the industry then. He pulled the middle out of the leak and he put a steel in there and he waited till I came uh, out of the fridge and he just clopped me straight on top of the head which got me a little bit dizzy. I fell on the floor. He, he, he led me, he led me up uh, against the wall in the walk-in, let me come around and then asked me when I came out, if I had all my mise on ready. <laughs> yeah. Just very casually, very calm. Uh, so your mise on ready, chef. I was like, yes, chef. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
uh, that's quite funny. And I've seen, uh, yeah. I've seen a few things. I've seen a few things. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's the 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 time of the ye the chef yelling in the kitchen? And I think so. I think it's a dying breed now. I think that okay. like, I, I've noticed it's it's really not necessary. My kitchen is extremely calm. There's the the only communication is the communication that's needed to get the job done because it's quite intense work getting getting so many elements out of the kitchen in the space of time that we have to do it. If a mistake happens or there's a smash or or something, you know, screaming and shouting isn't going to bring it back. Absolutely. So, yeah. so the, only, the only way to get it done is by positive reinforcement. And that's the, way, the fastest way it's going to leave the kitchen. And then by the time you've um, got over it with positive reinforcement and service has ended, you've calmed down significantly, even though you may be feeling like screaming inside. Because it's a control issue, you know. You want to be in control. We're chefs with massive egos, and we're control freaks. So, I mean, that's that's the long and short of it. So, it it can be a hostile environment. It used to be, but the way it's going now is, I'd like to see anyway all the kitchens with this sort of like help, not hinder, and negativity in any aspect, whether it's screaming and shouting or insulting or being physically abusive. There's no room for it. Certainly not in the Uh, any of my kitchens and I don't think there's any room for it in the future yeah so what's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen not designing the kitchen myself at the beginning <laughs> but the biggest pet peeve staff wise it's not saying good morning to each other actually when they come to work I believe that the day starts the way that you want it to start set set the set the president come in with a smile on your face a positive attitude and say hello to everybody If you, if you can manage to do that, then, you know, you're going to have a, you're going to have an okay day. And it's okay to say, I'm going to have an okay day. You don't have to have an amazing day. It's fine to have an okay day. It's even fine to have a shit day, but keep that to yourself, you know, but really, really do acknowledge each other. And that is a pet peeve of mine. If someone just walks in head down, they're bringing in that grumpy energy from outside. And then, you know, yeah, I don't you like leave it. Leave your bad energy out, you know, outside of the door. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Chef, uh, thank you so much. We have spent uh, quite a bit of time together. I really appreciate it, you know, to be that you were a guest on the podcast. Thank you very much, so, Emmanuel. Thank you. I appreciate it, yeah. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to the Flavors Unknown podcast today. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, please recommend the podcast to friends and family. It is easy. You can do it now directly from your phone. It will take you only two minutes and you will help me bring new people to the show. Please visit our website, flavorsunknown.com, to join our email list or find extra resources and info about this episode and all previous episodes. Don't forget to follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. Next week, my guest will be Chef Tiffany Derry from Roots Southern Table in Dallas. Chef Tiffany Derry. We'll talk about her experience at Top Chef and her coming TV projects. She will share her passion for Southern cuisine and describe her food concept at Roots Thousand Table. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.